I love the Bible Project, and you can see that full video free of charge on BibleProject.com. It's a really great resource for studying the Word of God, and I encourage you to go and, and watch that. If you have your Bibles or your devices, turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, and we're going to indeed look at that seventh chapter, Jeremiah chapter 7, and we'll get there in just a moment. If you wanted a snapshot of, by the way, uh, my family and I just got back from the beach, and uh, it was an amazing time, and I appreciate your grace to letting a big contingency of us go, and uh, we had, I think, 37 all total at the beach, two houses, uh, lots of food, tons of sunscreen. I personally use SPF 3000 so as to uh, keep myself from being burned. And uh, yes, my wife has lots of sun on her face. Me, not so much. But uh, I, she's actually converted me. I'm a beach lover now. It's true. It's true. I, I'm a convert. Yes. Um, I don't even complain about the sand or the sun. Uh, I do require shade. So I bought 14 cabanas on the beach so that I can walk everywhere in shade. Um, I do demand a chair to sit in, but I'm good, so thank you for letting us go. We got to watch part of the gathering last Sunday. We got to have our own little church gathering last Sunday. It was really a wonderful time, so thank you for praying for us. There are others still out on vacation uh, this week and next. A lot of the Boy with the Ball team is out for the next two weeks, so please be praying for them. So if you wanted a snapshot of the prophet Jeremiah and his life message, Jeremiah 7 would be where you'd go. It is uh, known, as Tim Mackey already said in the video, as his sermon, I mean, his temple sermon. And what a doozy of a sermon it is. <laughs> it is it's not the kind of nice sermon that you might want to hear at church on Sundays. Um, Jeremiah excoriates God's people for their religiosity, their social injustice, and their idolatry. He he lays them bare. It's repeated in, in other portions, of the, namely Jeremiah 26. And even as Babylon is <clears throat> ready to pounce onto Israel, to Judah, excuse me, they were, they were under the misguided notion that they were protected because they had the temple. After all, God had promised their forefather, King David, that his kingdom would last forever. So we good. We good, no problems here, look the other way. They saw the temple as some sort of good luck charm, making them um, untouchable, keeping them safe, no matter what, but they were wrong. And God sends his prophet Jeremiah to call them out for it. Jeremiah 7, verse one. The word of the Lord, excuse me, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord Somebody's phone is ringing. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord. All you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. 
For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Wow, what a message to hear at church, just as you're coming into church. It was tradition in the days of the Holy Feast that a temple official or many a temple officials would stand at the gates of the temple as the worshipers were filing into the temple. And they would ceremoniously chant reminders to the people to examine their lives, examine your moral lives. And they would be chanting these things as the worshipers would come in. But Jeremiah wasn't here in such an official role. The high priest had not appointed Jeremiah to this task. God had. God had sent him, and his message wasn't what they were used to hearing. It wasn't the soothing uh, message that many of the so-called prophets were pronouncing in those days, telling them everything was going to be okay. Don't worry about that big, meanie Babylon. God will protect you. We have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And these so-called prophets were allowing them to act as people however they wanted And then they could just come in and perform their temple rituals to appease God. Jeremiah, he calls out their hypocrisy, their deception. He says in verse 4, do not trust in these deceptive words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It's as if if they said it enough times that it might be true. But the more they said it, it was a foul odor in the nostrils of God. The real issue for the people in Judah in Jeremiah's day was their preoccupation with religion. They were very religious, but they disregarded God's covenant. They broke his law. They did not live his ways. They resorted to ritual rather than a relationship with God. And they were oppressing the vulnerable, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan. And they were even breaking many of the Ten Commandments, the Torah, the law. Look at verse 8. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. You will, will you steal Murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, making offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Literally saved is what that means. We're saved. We're safe. We're good only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Such an indictment against people who take seriously their religious duty. You would think 
they would get the message. But they think they're okay with God. They think it's Jeremiah that's losing his mind. They're fine. We're good. We know that we're not perfect, but we can just have the temple of the Lord and everything will be all right. Now I realize that most of us sitting here today have not engaged in Baal worship. At least I hope you haven't. Most of you haven't committed murder. Most of you haven't committed adultery. Though Jesus said if you've done hatred and lust in your hearts, you've really done those things. But I think that most of us would sit here and say, well, they're worse off than we are. <laughs> we, we don't do those things. All right, maybe a little swearing falsely, but you know, okay, a little bit of cheating on my taxes, but that's not stealing, is it? It's the government. Oh, we're good, right? I mean, we don't have idols in our homes, do we? We carry them around in our pockets. We don't, we don't do the things they did. We, we're, we're good, right? We'll have to admit that though we may not have done those things physically, many of the same motivations have been in our hearts, and we can all admit that we're all prone to go after things more than we go after God, which is what God accused them of going after false gods rather that they did not know and basically saying they're not known because they can't be known and you go after that and you you don't go after me we're all prone to that and that leads us all into this cycle of going through the motions the temple of the lord the temple We think we can live the way we want to, never change anything, and appease God with lip service and religious acts. And we think that will get us on good standing with God. But if Jeremiah were standing here today, he would tell you if you're living that way, you're deceived. In his day, the people were deceived to believe that they were safe because of the temple. Today, people are deceived with many other things, but not any more safe from the consequences or the judgment that might come because of that deception. Back then, they chanted, there you go, <laughs> thank you. They chanted the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Today, we chant, I'm a good person. I go to church. I'm not that bad. Right? You've heard these things, right? Most people out there and some people maybe in here seem to think that somehow if we've just got one more good thing on our scales than we had bad things, God will let us in. I mean, you know, we're good people. We go to church. I was raised a Methodist. I was raised a Catholic. I was raised a Baptist. I, I was raised around these things. We have religion but no relationship. You've heard people say this, God won't send me to hell because I'm a good person. You, people may have told you that. But if you're worried at all about God sending you to hell, then maybe you should find out what he has to say about the subject. If you think there is a God that could conceivably send you to hell 
Instead of assuming that you're good enough that he won't, maybe you ought to read what he has to say about whether you are or not. Because his definition of goodness is not the same as ours. The book of Romans says in Romans 3.10, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. I don't care if you're Oprah or Mother Teresa. You're still not good enough. And then he goes on in verse 23. For all have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But I'm a good person. Not good enough. And if you think that that's going to get you merit with God, you're deceived. You might as well be walking around town saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Because you're just as deceived as they were. Here's the good news. Later in the book of Romans, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in him or believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The very thing that they thought they were, they weren't. But you can be by simply calling on the name of the Lord. How many people here have heard of the man John Wesley? Anybody here heard of that? Want to raise your hand? I'm seeing who didn't raise their hand. No, I'm not. It's no big deal. John Wesley grew up in England in the 1700s. Okay? He had a very religious upbringing. He was in a Christian home. His father was a Church of England clergyman. His mother was probably the model Christian. Susanna, a tremendous woman who, as we find out later throughout John's life and his brother Charles's life, that Susanna had so much to do with loving and showing her sons Jesus. But John, he studied at Oxford University to become a priest. He studied religion. He was so into this stuff, he started a club at Oxford called the Holy Club. <laughs> wow. Wow. Talk about overachieving. I mean, you know, not the cricket club, the holy club. And he graduated and became a priest in the Church of England. He was so committed, he even traveled overseas, and this was in the early 1700s, all the way over to the colonies here in Georgia. He came here to Georgia and was a missionary for years here. But he left feeling like he was a failure. He wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert or to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? He was in inner turmoil. This is a man who was all the religious thing that you wanted someone to be. He went to Oxford. He studied religion. He was a priest. He was a missionary. And yet he was unconverted. As he returned to England, his ship ran into a terrible storm, and, and it, it frightened him. It frightened him. It shook him to his core. 
And he realized that if he was going to die, he didn't know where he would go. And it uncovered the reality that while he might have religion, he didn't have Christ. And on May 24, 1738, John Wesley, an Anglican priest, a missionary of his church, finally found the grace of Christ. Or maybe I should say, the grace of Christ found him. This is what he wrote in his journal. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. Not even Romans. He was reading the preface. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Our good works won't save us. Our church affiliation won't save us. Only Jesus Christ can save us. As you read on in Jeremiah 7, which is a poignant chapter, you see that Jeremiah illustrates his point to Judah by reminding them of Shiloh, which was a town in the northern kingdom, but only 20 miles north of Jerusalem. It was well known in all of Israel's history because Israel, once it was divided from Judah, had lived in chronic sin. And therefore, Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle was placed, was overrun by Philistines who mocked Israel and stole the Ark of the Covenant. And since God allowed the destruction of a city that was housing the tabernacle and the Ark in the past, Judah needed to learn their future wasn't assured just because they had the temple. If God did it once... God might do it again. But as we said a few weeks ago, those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat it. I think maybe the most alarming thing that is read in this chapter, and we don't have time to go through all of it, is found in verse 16. As for you, God says to Jeremiah, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them. And do not intercede with me, for I will not listen or hear you. I will not hear you. Whoa. God is serious. Tim Mackey and Whitney Wooland write, This echoes back to the story of Moses and Israel's golden calf incident. You see, in that moment where they had, they had rebelled against God and made for themselves another God... Moses interceded on behalf of the people, and God relented. Moses was successful in his intercession for Israel, but here, God says, enough. God says, I'm not going to listen to your intercession. Don't even do it. You might ask why. Well, I propose it's in the found of the next two verses. Verse 17, do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah? And in the streets of Jerusalem, the children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for God? No. For the queen of heaven. That's not the Virgin Mary. 
on the phone or in heaven. We're going to put signs up out there. Please turn your phones off because, man, this happened a lot. Everybody, just look at your phone. Is it off? Go ahead and just turn it off right now. <laughs> Thank you. Whew, it always happens in the most dramatic moments, too. Have you noticed that? I just want to answer it one time. Hello? Oh, I'm sorry. She can't talk to you right now. Uh, she's in church. You should be, too. Okay, no, I didn't say it. Okay, so... The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, the women knead dough and make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Idolatry had become a family affair. The whole family's involved. Seems so wholesome, doesn't it? I mean, the the children are gathering sticks, and the dads are building fires, and the moms are baking cakes to an idol, to an idol, the queen of heaven, the goddess Ishtar, or Ashtoreth, the wife of the false god Baal. They are worshiping idols and making it a family affair, and God has had enough. Judah's sin wasn't just their misplaced confidence in the temple or their mishandling of the vulnerable among them. It was also their full-on deception and family immersion into idol worship. And judgment was coming. And just like Israel, Judah had become so corrupt, there was nothing left for them than divine judgment. This is not a feel-good message. But those who do not learn from history could be failed, condemned to, to repeat it. There's an important New Testament concept here, and I'm almost closed. This New Testament connection with this story is found in Matthew 26, where we get a sense of deja vu. Mackie and Wooler describe it this way. Israel is back in the promised land. They've been in exile. They're back. The temple is rebuilt. Empty ritualistic worship is alive and well. And social justice is totally neglected. God's people have placed a false sense of national security in the temple, despite being under Rome's thumb, which is often associated with Babylon in the New Testament. And the circumstances are strikingly familiar. This is Jeremiah 7 all over again. And you know what happens. This is early on as Jesus has made triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and he goes directly to the temple And he storms in with the whip in hand and he turns over tables and he drives out the money changers and he quotes Jeremiah. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. You can't miss the symbolism, can you? Jesus was announcing the pending destruction of their rebuilt temple as he was going to judge them and their religiosity and their idolatry and their social injustice all over again. But in that story, there is an alternative message, and thank God that there is. There is the gospel of the kingdom that is woven into the midst of it, for it is good news for any who are willing to hear it and respond. 
For those that do not, it is judgment. But for those who respond to his message, it is hope and life eternal. Jesus' own body, which is the real, true temple of God, would himself be destroyed on the cross just a few days later. And after three days, he would be raised again so that every single covenant breaker among us and throughout history who receives him, who, those who call upon his name, who believe in him, he will give the right to be called children of God. Don't trust deceptive words of religion. Religion kills. It's dead. It's external, and it doesn't speak to anything that's internal. Religion, as Jesus said of the Pharisees, you're like tombs that are whitewashed on the outside with dead men's bones inside. It doesn't matter if you look good. What matters is whether your heart has Jesus in it or not. That's what matters. It doesn't matter if you appear righteous. What matters is if you've received his righteousness. Don't trust deceptive words of religion. Don't praise him with your lips while remaining hard in your heart. Don't try to use God as a lucky charm. It simply won't work. Amend your ways and your deeds and trust in the Lord and he will give you a new heart and a new life. The kind God wanted to give Israel all along. One full of worship that is true. One full of justice in everything they do. One that is obedient to his word. Amen. In Isaiah 58, he says, Shout aloud, don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their rebellion and their sins. I think that's what you did for us today. But in the rest of that chapter, he says, this is what I'm after. Break the chains of injustice. Get rid of exploitation. Free the oppressed. Cancel debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry inviting the poor into your homes, being available and engaged in your own families. Do this and the lights will turn on and your lives will turn around at once. Righteousness will pave the way. The God of glory will secure your passage and when you pray, God will answer. He will say, here I am. If you get rid of unfair practices, quit blaming victims, quit gossiping about other people's sins, if you are generous with people who need and you give of yourself to those who are without, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight and I will always show you where to go. I will give you a full life in the emptiest of places. You will be a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use the old rubble of your past lives to build anew. Rebuild the foundations from your past. 
you'll be known as those who can fix anything, restoring old ruins, rebuilding and renovating, and making the community live again. Yes. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your convicting word of mercy. Thank you that you don't move the plumb line, that you are unchanging, and your word is true forever. And when you speak to us, we can obey. Out of your kindness and your mercy, you lead us to repentance. So thank you for the correction today to stop and check ourselves. Where are we in relationship to this calling of rebuilding and restoring? Where are we in the things we've put our hope and our trust in? Because you're the only one that's trustworthy. Yes, you are. So, Father, we confess that we don't live like that is true. Not in every part, not in every day. We are not consistent in our following of you. We are not consistent in our love and our obedience. But we want to be. Yes, we do, Lord. We want the things that you have called us to to be true. More than anything else, we want your kingdom to come and rule and reign in our own lives so that we can extend the kingdom of God so we can bring the gospel of hope, so we can fix things that are broken and bring our community to life. Make your word true in us, Father, today. Yes, Lord. Lord, all that we read in Jeremiah was pointing to a day when things could be much different. Not because we could do it better, but because you made it possible. You came. You loved us. You served us. You taught us. You called us. And then you died for us and rose again. The temple destroyed. to live forevermore help us to walk Lord in the understanding of your new covenant that though we are covenant breakers by nature what you do in us establishes us and makes us sons and daughters of God help us as a community Lord as a church community here in this city in this county in this state to represent the truth of your new covenant that you still save those who are lost yes. that you still bring them home into a place where they can be established as your children and where we can love you with all our heart soul mind and strength and love others as ourselves we worship you today and thank you for what you're doing with us in us and through us continue lord we submit ourselves to you put full confidence in what you're doing and who you are. In Jesus' name.
Amen.